Hello everyone and welcome to episode one of the Boots and Trunks podcast here on the We Don't Know Wrestling podcast network. Before we start the show, I just want to say a sincere thanks to everyone who listened to the last episode and everyone who was kind enough to give feedback on Twitter. It really was heartwarming and every word of it was greatly appreciated. A quick reminder also that the best way to keep up to date with the podcast is to subscribe to the We Don't Know Wrestling feed wherever you normally get your podcasts. And don't forget to give the podcast Twitter account a follow. That's at Boots Trunks, as well as the network at WDKWPN. A quick shout out also to my friends Quentin and Tim on the Psychology is Dead podcast. They've recently released their Wrestler of the Decade shows onto the We Don't Know Wrestling feed and they come with the highest possible recommendation. And now, on with the show. The subject of today's episode is the tag team match between the Holy Demon Army of Toshiaki Kawada and Akira Tawe and the Super Generation Army of Mitsuharu Misawa and Kenta Kobashi for the All Japan Pro Wrestling Tag Team Championships from June the 9th, 1995. It's a match that holds a very special place in my heart. In fact, it was one of the matches I turned to when my interest in wrestling was at its lowest ebb. But before we delve into the match itself, I'd like to talk a little about another of my great passions, the glorious sport of hurling. Hurling is an outdoor team game of ancient Irish origin. It is widely regarded as the fastest and oldest sport known to man. References to it can be found in Irish mythology dating back over 3,000 years. In one famous story, a young hero, then known as Satanta, defends himself against a vicious hound by driving a slitter, which is the ball used in hurling, into its throat with his hurlier stick. It is almost impossible to do justice to the sport in the medium of an audio essay alone. If you can imagine a mix between lacrosse, field hockey and baseball, you're getting somewhat close. Have a look at YouTube at some of the clips and marvel at the near impossible skill levels, the athleticism and bravery involved. In the modern age, when most sport has lost its soul and been corrupted by money and greed, the Irish national sport stands apart. Because hurling is purely an amateur sport. Players are not paid, even at the highest level. Those that do play, do so simply for the love of the game and the jersey. They represent their local county and community and they do it with pride. Hurling is played to some level across the country of Ireland, but there are certain strongholds dotted throughout. In the years of British rule, persistent attempts were made to stamp the sport out, and the fact that it endured to this day is a symbol of the rebellious defiance of the Irish people. At the highest level of the game, the annual All-Ireland Hurling Championship is played in the summers, when the evenings are that little bit longer and the slitter dances on the hardened turf. The All-Ireland Hurling Final is our Super Bowl, our World Series, our FA Cup Final. It is a day of colour, of pageantry, of pride, a day to celebrate our Irishness, a day to dream of glory. Played in a packed Croke Park in Dublin, in front of 80,000 people, tradition dictates that the winning captain makes a speech having raised the Liam McCarthy Cup aloft. Typically, the speech begins with the magical words, Ta'an ahasarm an karn shot ad lacha er hun dina. 
It literally translates as, There is great happiness upon me to accept this trophy on behalf of the people of their given county. I myself are from a county in Ireland called Waterford. In my near 40 years on this planet, I have yet to hear a Waterford man utter these words. I have no idea how it must feel to hear them uttered as a guttural, celebratory roar rises and makes the very foundations of the stadium tremble. I think about it a lot. I dream about it even more. It sometimes brings a tear to my eye. Because my county, Waterford, are Hurling's nearly men. Waterford is situated in the southeast of the country, nestled against the coastline, surrounded on all other sides by the traditional kingpins of the sport. County Cork to the east have 30 all Irelands. Tipperary to the northeast have 28. And most sickening of all, our hated rivals Kilkenny on the county's northern border have 36. Meanwhile, Waterford, in the 134 years that the championship has been contested, have a paltry two. Even more painful is the fact that our last win was way back in 1959, a gap of 62 years at the time of recording. It is the longest, most storied famine in Irish sport. Think the Red Sox in baseball or Liverpool in soccer and multiply their years in the wilderness by 10 and you don't even come close to the pain that we have endured. It is one thing to go without for so long, to live off scraps. It is altogether another to do so while watching your local rivals and neighbours feast again and again at the top table. There have, of course, been close calls along the way. After decades of never coming close, the 90s and 2000s offered fresh hope in the form of a team of swashbuckling entertainers from the city. However, while that team never wanted for style and skill, ultimately they were sadly lacking in substance. They developed a reputation for reaching semi-finals and coming up short, doing so on five separate occasions. When they finally reached the final in 2008, their first in 50 years, what should have been a glorious historic day, instead turned into a disaster. Coming up against the greatest team of all time in their sworn enemies Kilkenny, they suffered a harrowing, embarrassing defeat that scarred a generation of hurlers and fans alike. A proper scutching, as GAA folk would say. Always the bridesmaids, never the bride. It would take us almost a decade to reach another final in 2017. This time we faced the men of Galway from the west of the country, themselves suffering their own famine of sorts without a win since 1988. While there would be no embarrassing hiding dished out on this day, it was Galway who just about held their nerve to prevail. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Most recently last year, we once again arrived at the gates of the promised land. In the midst of the hellscape that was 2020, a Covid-delayed championship was played out in the winter months in echoey empty stadiums. Even though the setting and circumstances were different, sadly the result remained exactly the same. Once again, we came up against the best team in the country in Limerick, and once more we had no answer to the questions they posed. Once again the bridesmaids, never the bride. Now at this point of the podcast, you might be scratching your head and wondering, Jamesy, what the hell does all this have to do with pro wrestling? 
You probably came here for wrestling, but instead I'm giving you some inane ramblings about obscure Irish sport. Something that no one listening knows or cares much about. Well, bear with me, please, as I clumsily try to tie the two things together. Maybe it was the dismissive way that the men of Limerick swatted Waterford aside that day, in the way a Japanese company ace handles a routine title defence. Maybe it was the fact that those hurling aces were clad in green. Maybe I just wanted to talk about hurling, and there's no one here sensible enough to stop me. But all these things got me thinking about similar stories that have played out in other settings. For as it is in sport, so it has always been in pro wrestling. The long wait for victory is one of the oldest tales in the book, a gripping and compelling story when properly told, with well-developed characters and great matches with which to back it up. Nowhere is such a story more in evidence than the lifelong rivalry between Mitsuharu Misawa and Toshiaki Kawada in 1990s All Japan Pro Wrestling and Kawada's long struggle to topple the ace. To fully appreciate the nuance of the Misawa Kawada rivalry, it is necessary to go way back in time. They have been a constant presence in each other's lives ever since they attended the same high school, enrolling a year apart in the late 1970s. Both excelled as amateur wrestlers, and both had a dream of becoming professional wrestlers. Things between them were not always as acrimonious as they would become. In fact, Kawada would have Masawa to thank for gaining entry to the All Japan Dojo in the first place. Kawada very nearly became a New Japan wrestler, having passed the inductory test when he graduated from junior high. However, the induction was postponed, and Masawa invited him to come to All Japan instead. Right from the start of their pro wrestling careers, you always got the sense that Kawada lived in the shadow of Masawa, or was seen by others as the lesser of the two. Masao was always the more conventionally handsome, even more so after Kawada would lose several of his front teeth. Kawada's physique too was less chiselled, to the point that his curiosity about steroid use is well documented. From early on, it was also clear that Masawa was the golden boy of Giant Baba, the All Japan head booker. As a young boy, it was Masawa's job to remove Baba's boots after his matches and wash his back. When Jumbo Tsuruta at the time, the promotion's unquestionable top guy needed a regular tag partner to feud with Genichiro Tenryu. It was Masawa who was chosen. For Kawada, every bit Masawa's equal in the ring, there must have been more than a little pang of jealousy. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. In 1990, when Tenryu would suddenly leave the company, the decision was made that Masawa would unmask from the Tiger Mask gimmick and ascend to the top of the card as a heavyweight in his own right. The unmasking happened on May 14th, in a tag team match against Yoshiaki Yatsu and Samson Fuyuki. The scene that would unfold, with Misawa ordering his tag partner Kawada to untie his mask so that he can once again claim centre stage, says much about their relative status within the company at the time. Misawa is the anointed one, whose name reverberates around the arena while Kamada must make do with a supporting role at best. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Three weeks later, in one of the all-time great wrestling upsets, Misawa would shock the world by beating the ace of the company, Jumbo Tsuruta, 
in a match that many see as a starting point in All Japan's glorious run throughout the 90s. As for Kawada, if you study the footage closely, you can spot him crouched at ringside, a mere spectator in the background, while Masawa yet again makes the headlines. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Misawa's victory over Jumbo would kickstart the formation of the Super Generation Army. Before there was ever an in-ring rivalry, there was a powerful alliance, as Misawa and Kawada battled shoulder to shoulder against the veterans of Jumbo's army. As a team, they would hold the All Japan Tag Titles on two occasions, before more personal ambitions would take centre stage. In 1992, Misawa beat Stan Hansen to become Triple Crown Champion for the first time, the start of a record-breaking title reign. In October of that year, Misawa and Kawada would meet in singles competition for the first time. The match is competitive in nature without any undue animosity, with Kawada, for the first time of many, experiencing the bitter taste of defeat. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. By the time they meet again in July 1993, however, much has changed. Their tag team is no more, having ended when their second title reign was brought to a halt by the Miracle Violence Connection in January. Jumbo's career is more or less over, leaving Misawa and Kawada as the top two native talents in the company. Kawada has found a new partner in another former rival of his, Akira Tawe, forming the Holy Demon Army, arguably the greatest tag team in all Japan history. Their 1993 meeting has none of the friendliness of the first encounter, with Kawada showing a subtle arrogance towards Misawa that his opponent returns with glee. For all his arrogance, however, the result remains the same, and Kawada is once again defeated. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Their third Triple Crown title match is, like the subject of this podcast, one of those rare matches identifiable by date alone. 6-3-94. Regarded by many as the greatest wrestling match of all time, it takes the hatred between both men to an altogether new level. There is genuine spite and animosity there now. The natural assumption would be that in the third match of a championship trilogy, Kawada would be the one to finally get the win. Alas, no. Once again, the bridesmaid comes up short, even if Misawa has to invent a grotesque new finisher just to put him away. All in all, by the time June 1995 comes around, by my count, Misawa and Kawada have faced off at least 25 times in various singles and tag matches. Not once has Kawada been able to get a pinfall on his hated rival. Kawada has succeeded at least in winning the Triple Crown, beating Steve Williams in October 1994. However, he only manages a single title defence before dropping the belt to Stan Hansen, who in turn swiftly drops it back to, yep, you've guessed it, Misawa. And so we come to the summer of 1995. Misawa's regular partner at this point is a young Kenta Kobashi, and they are the reigning All Japan Tag Team Champions. Challenging them are their long-standing rivals, the Holy Demon Army. The match takes place in a sold-out Budokan Hall on the 9th of June, 1995. Again, to fully appreciate the greatness and nuance around this match, it is necessary to look back at events immediately preceding it during the 1995 Champion Carnival in April. Two key matches in particular have direct ramifications for 6995. Firstly, 
there's the meeting of Kawada and Masawa on the 6th of April. In a sign of the ever-increasing recklessness and hatred of the feud, Kawada breaks Masawa's orbital socket. Then, in the tournament final on the 15th, Akira Tawe specifically targets the injury throughout, showing the depths to which the Holy Demon Army are prepared to sink in order to finally vanquish the indomitable ace. Not only that, but the gruelling April tournament, and specifically a six-man tag team match on the 15th of April, have left Kobashi with a badly injured leg. Going into the tag title match, Kobashi and Wasawa, the champions, are injured and vulnerable. The oldest and still best pro wrestling story in the book. There's a tactic used in various sports called the reducer. Basically, it involves a deliberately administered aggressive tackle or foul in the opening stages of the game. It is designed to gain a psychological edge on an opponent or to spur one's teammates on to greater efforts. It sets the tone for the game ahead and tells the opposition that today we mean business. At Budokan Hall, on 6995, this is exactly the tactic employed by Toshiaki Kawada. Sensing weakness in Masawa, whose broken eye socket cannot possibly be fully healed, he immediately goes for the jugular. Within a minute of the match starting, he calmly allows Kobashi reverse an Irish whip attempt so that he charges directly at Masawa on the ring apron, sending him crashing to the floor with a vicious boot directly to his injured eye socket. It is a shocking, yet strangely exhilarating moment, a clearly calculated move that further escalates the ill feeling between the sworn enemies. We are immediately in no doubt that Kawada is all business tonight. This is a man who is desperate to finally get the big win that has eluded him for so long. The Holy Demon Army are thus firmly established as the heels in the match. Theirs is clearly a win-at-all-cost mentality. The look on Kobashi's face is tremendous here too. He is appalled, disgusted, his lip a quiver, that Kawada would have the temerity to stoop so low. The crowd too automatically sense the gravity of the moment and almost as one emit a gasp of shock mingled with anticipation. Masawa's response is amazing too as he immediately demands to be tagged in, fully prepared to meet fire with fire. It is everything you would want from an opening to a match and the anticipation is only ratcheted up further when Kawada repeats the trick on Kobashi a few minutes later. This is a match that is best analysed around the great moments both big and small, that are weaved throughout, rather than simply giving a tedious blow-by-blow recap of everything that happens. And boy, are there lots of those great moments. Take, for example, Kobashi's previously mentioned leg injury. He comes into the match with the leg heavily strapped all the way down to the knee. It is a glaring target that the Holy Demon Army, of course, have little compunction about trying to exploit. Once they set about attacking the leg, the limb work is nasty and aggressive and hugely compelling. There's a scorpion deathlock and one of the most brutally applied single leg Boston crabs you're ever likely to see. And of course, Kobashi being Kobashi, he sells the pain as if his life depends on it in the most sympathetic way possible. Amidst the dramatic acting, however, there are also lovely moments of subtlety, such as his leg crumbling underneath him when he attempts to plant it on the mat in aiming a kick at Kawada. Every time Kobashi looks like gaining an upper hand, the leg is the great equaliser the Holy Demon Army use to chop him down. Later in the match, 
there is an all-time great sequence where Tewe renders Kobashi incapacitated with a dropkick to the leg. Not satisfied with that, Kawada stomps on the injured leg and even stands on it for good measure. The icing on the cake, however, is when Tewe delivers his no-dawa chokeslam on Masawa, but aims him directly at Kobashi's injured leg, with Kawada following up by crashing down on the leg with both knees. Kobashi at this point has been rendered almost irrelevant, such as the damage he has sustained to the leg. The absolute peaks of the match are of course the interactions between Misawa and Kawada. Everything they do together is laced with pure venom and aggression. Misawa's stoicism is of course legendary, but this match is about as close to overt anger as you're ever likely to see from him. The complete deterioration in their rivalry is perhaps best exemplified in a moment around the midpoint of the match. With his back to Kawada on the ring apron, Misawa has Tawe tied up in a half-Boston crab. Seizing his chance, Kawada calmly walks into the ring and nails Misawa with what can only be described as an Akira Maeda-style shoot kick directly to the injured eye socket. In a match full of spice and stiff moves, it still stands apart as a moment of particular brutality. It gives rise to one of the more out-of-control segments of the match, where both men seemingly lose all control and unload a barrage of strikes on each other. They even throw the referee out of the way, something unheard of in all Japan of this time period. Misawa is more or less left to fend for himself, and even at the 20-minute mark, there is a sense of real peril about the ace. The heat segment that ensues on him is particularly great. Kawada is an absolute ruthless bastard here. Yes, he is desperate to win, but there's a real sense that he is out to hurt Misawa, and every blow that he lands to the eye feels like a death knell. Throughout the larger narrative of the match, we are treated to many brilliant little moments and touches. Every time I watch the match, it feels like I discover another little easter egg I've never picked up on before. There's a desperation suplex that Kobashi throws in an attempt to turn the tide, but one he cannot follow up upon because his injured leg simply won't let him stand. There's the way that Kobashi, hindered by his leg, builds beautifully to finally hitting his moonsault at the third attempt. There's a series of chops and nasty little pokes to the injured eye from Tawe to Masawa, a direct repetition of a spot in their singles match a few months previously. Even the way that Masawa has the wherewithal to roll to the floor from the ring when it looks like the game is up is a lovely way of avoiding a needless nearfall. There's the huge no-dawa that Tawe hits on Masawa from the ring apron to the floor, a move that Tawe had spent the entire champion carnival building up and establishing as a death move. All that hard work pays off in spades here, as this feels like a huge turning point in the match. This is elite storytelling, with layer upon layer, that rewards the attentive, dedicated viewer in spades. And actually, this is a good time to go off on a little side tangent about callbacks in wrestling. There's a huge difference between those that are earned, like the ones described here, and those that are done just for the sake of it, because a wrestler thinks they must do callbacks to get more star ratings. Take, for example, The Revival, doing a series of WWE teams finishers in a match in AEW. This adds nothing to the match itself. There's nothing organic or natural about it. I feel like it's almost done to appeal to the ego of fans who like to point out how they got it on the internet and recognise the moves. 
Callbacks were never meant to be anything more deep and complicated than a storytelling device to make a match better. When you're shoehorning in references to people who don't even wrestle for your promotion, you have to ask yourself, are you trying a little too hard to be clever? Or are you adding to your match in a meaningful way? Back to the action, however. With Misawa in severe danger, Kobashi has little or nothing left in the tank, his injured leg making any meaningful offence impossible. However, even though his body is failing him, his spirit remains unquenched. With Misawa stricken on the floor, he throws himself on top of his partner, using himself as a heroic human shield. At first, he is discarded by the Holy Demon Army, but when the action returns to the ring, he prevents a match-finishing powerbomb by desperately clinging to Misawa's leg, a spot that is ingenious in its sheer simplicity. He again lies atop Misawa, giving himself up completely in order to protect him from the incessant blows that rain down. For me, this might be the greatest babyface gesture in pro wrestling history. Such a simple, logical thing to do, yet one that has not been replicated before or since. The sheer selflessness of Kobashi, the sheer loyalty, the sheer desire to protect a tag partner and try to prevent his immaculate record against Kuwada, even to his own detriment. There's something almost childlike about the way he cradles Misawa for the sheer lack of being able to do anything else. It is everything that a pro wrestling babyface should strive to be. Honestly, it makes me a little emotional just talking about it. And even then, despite every effort on Kobashi's part, it's still not enough to save Misawa. On this day, Kawada simply will not be denied any more. With a third and final folding powerbomb, Kawada leans with all his weight and might on Masawa as the ref makes his count. Kobashi, mere inches away, desperately tries to break up the count, but Tawe, the ever-loyal henchman, clings to his leg, doing just enough to allow the pinfall take place unhindered. The referee's hand strikes the canvas a third and decisive time. Kawada has finally done it. He has pinned Misawa. After a lifetime of being in this man's shadow, Kawada has finally done it. He has beaten Misawa clean in the middle of the ring. He slumps, exhausted against the turnbuckles, too emotionally and physically spent to even celebrate. The bridesmaid has finally, finally become the bride. The famine is over. I'm not sure that most of the superlatives we tend to throw at great matches are sufficient to do this match justice. By quite some distance, it's the greatest pro wrestling match that I've ever seen. Choose any criteria for greatness possible and this match gives it to you in spades. One of the best things about the match is that it is rewarding no matter what level of knowledge you approach the match from. As a standalone match, it's amazing in its own right. Without any prior knowledge, the face-heel divide is clear and well-defined. The work throughout is of the highest possible calibre. The match is 42 minutes long and flies by like it's only 15. There's no filler, no wasted time. The hatred and depth of emotion screams from every single strike that is thrown. If you like stiff wrestling, then this is absolutely the match for you. Indeed, at times... It feels like the hatred involved is almost a shoot, 
and it adds a real sense of danger to proceedings. For fans of melodrama, Kobashi provides it by the bucket load, but without ever spilling over into the kind of nonsense peddled in modern NXT. There are near falls, but they all feel well earned and are nicely spaced out, never veering into the territory of feeling silly or excessive. There are big moves and head drops, but we are still at the point of the 90s All Japan where they don't feel forced or done just for the sake of it. Every big spot is unique and memorable and drenched in the history that these four have built up through hard work and storytelling for years beforehand. Most importantly of all, this feels like a contest where winning is all important. No one here is trying to have a great match. They are trying to portray a sporting contest where winning and losing has life-changing consequences and the match becomes great because of this. Ultimately, this match is the culmination of a story in which years of loving care have been invested. It is a testament to the careful big picture booking and patience of Baba that they were able to hold off on the Kawada win for so long, with this glorious match being their reward. It is the peak of the magical 90s All Japan era. It's the peak of pro wrestling. I can't see anything ever topping it. It is the match that helped me regain my love of pro wrestling. It's perfect in just about every possible way. One of the great and unique things about the match is that even though Masawa and Kobashi are absolutely wrestling as the valiant baby faces and the Holy Demon Army are absolutely wrestling as the villains, things really aren't quite as straightforward as this. Despite his viciousness in the match, in spite of him targeting both his opponent's injuries so mercilessly you cannot help but still be moved by Kawada finally getting the win here. As in real life, as with all truly great wrestling stories, we are dealing with multiple shades of grey. Everyone involved in the match plays their role to perfection. Yes, Misawa is his usual stoic self, but if you look really closely, you can tell that this is just about as rattled as you'll ever see him. Kawada has finally succeeded in getting into his head. For his part, it is an all-timer of a showing by Tawe. In 1995, he really finds himself in the role of Kawada's loyal sidekick. In the very first minute of the match, he aims a contemptuous kick at Kobashi's bad leg, as if to tell the world there is nothing he won't do to get this win for the cause. I don't know if it's his appearance, or his ungainly style, or the mere fact that he shares a world inhabited by Masawa, Kobashi and Kawada, but Tawe might just be one of the most underappreciated wrestlers of all time. The older I get, the more I watch him, the more interesting he becomes to me. More and more, I'm finding I appreciate the unconventional approach to pro wrestling. Look past his awkward physique and there lies an incredibly clever, psychologically sound pro wrestler. He makes everything he does in the ring matter. With the possible exception of Arn Anderson, he's possibly the greatest number two guy in history. His quiet hard work in establishing certain moves and injuries during the Champion Carnival are a huge part of what makes this match great. As for Kobashi, we have already covered the greatness of his performance. It is performances like this that remind me why I've always considered him the second greatest wrestler of all time. I've seen him criticised lately for over-emoting, but to me, there was nothing over the top about his performance here. Everything he does feels natural and organic, when he is shocked and appalled at Kawada's early sneak attack on Masawa, he's only mirroring 
our own feelings and those of the live crowd. His leg selling is exemplary. Rarely has a wrestler ever directly hindered their own motion so effectively and selflessly in the name of making an opponent look good as Kobashi does in this match. And, of course, as we discussed in detail earlier, his selfless attempts to shield Masawa with his own body is one of the more unique and emotive spots in wrestling history. And so, we come to Kawada. Wrestling's history is littered with indomitable aces and guys with runs at the top table lasting decades at a time. After a while, they all blend into one. The best stories in pro wrestling lie in the chase, in the flawed anti-hero who faces adversity after adversity and no matter how many times they fail, keep dusting themselves off and coming back for more. It is easier for me to identify with a man who is human and vulnerable, who knows what it is to fail and has to scrap and fight for everything in life. It appeals far more to me than the near constant perfection of the ace who had greatness handed to him on a platter since day one. If we zoom out for a minute and look at the entire glorious run All Japan had in the 90s, the backbone and key underlying narrative is not in fact Misawa's stoic dominance, Rather, it's Kawada's heroic struggle to match his lifetime rival. Because ultimately, which is the more compelling story? The stoic ace, who keeps relentlessly winning, or the underdog's eternal battle to win just once? Likewise, with my beloved Waterford. Yes, we crave success. Yes, we may never taste it. But what the lifelong Misawa Kawada rivalry teaches us is that the longer the journey, the more beautiful the destination. And the possibility that maybe, just maybe, we'll one day get there is enough to keep us going. Over the eight times that Masawa and Kawada competed in the ring with the Triple Crown Championship on the line, they drew six Tokyo Nippon Budokan sellouts, one sellout of the Osaka Prefectural Gym and drew over 50,000 people to the Tokyo Dome. For those eight matches, that would be an estimated total of over 150,000 people paying a total of well over $10 million. By any metric you choose to assess their long-running personal and professional rivalry, be it crowds drawn, money made, storytelling or match quality, it is hard to look past as the greatest pro wrestling rivalry of all time. It would take Toshiaki Kawada another two years before he registered a singles win over Misawa. And even then, it had an asterisk over it, being Misawa's second match on a night when he had already wrestled a gruelling 30-minute draw. Success at the highest level would never come easily to Kawada, but then again, his struggle for parity has always been a huge part of his charm. Maybe being the bridesmaid was his calling in life. After all, marriage isn't for everyone. And what of that elusive All-Ireland hurling title? Well, the summer's just around the corner. Maybe, just maybe, this will be our year. If the last 12 months have taught us anything, perhaps we should appreciate being at the wedding at all, instead of getting overly worried about bridesmaids and brides.